is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The littlest of kids now a step closer to getting a COVID vaccine. Pfizer submitting data to the FDA that shows three doses of its vaccine are 80% effective at stopping symptomatic cases. We'll go in-depth into when we can expect those shots to go into arms. Scientists have some new ideas on how monkeypox is spreading. They say it might have to do with raves. And the first war crimes trial out of the Russia-Ukraine conflict wraps up. A Russian soldier headed to prison for life for murdering a Ukrainian civilian. Will this be the first of many war crime trials to come out of the country? The president says the U.S. will defend Taiwan against a Chinese invasion. We'll look into what that does to relations with China. Reports details rampant sex abuse and allegations of cover-ups in the Southern Baptist Church, largest Protestant church in the country. Have you noticed what you see on TV when it comes to the food? Not actually what you get at the places, especially fast food. This it has never, been a, never looks this has the been same. a trend, right? Right, never looks the same. There is now a uh, class action lawsuit about that, <laughs> so we'll talk about it. And uh, if you don't like spiders, imagine opening a package from the mail and then finding a tarantula inside. This is happening, and the people actually want the tarantula, so I guess they're pleased when this happens. Um, but we'll look into the rising popularity of the spider trade online. I do not like spiders. I'm not a big fan either. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. I don't want to get Snakes are one. okay, but spiders, no. No, I don't want to get one in a box. I don't want to get one. <laughs> I don't want to get one at all. Dangling from the ceiling. Yeah, Hello, Charles. Stay away. We start though, with Pfizer's COVID vaccine for kids. Dr. Dean Bloomberg is a pediatrician and infectious disease specialist at UC Davis Health. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So, uh, some parents, and I say some, uh, because, as you probably know, only about 30 percent of kids who are currently able to get vac- vaccinated for COVID have been vaccinated. That said, some parents are waiting anxiously for this. Some are not. Uh, your view is what? Yeah, I've talked to many parents who really want this vaccine for their children. Um, they're uncomfortable and insecure about their children going to daycare um, and being exposed to other children without the protection provided by the vaccine. And they're, they're concerned about them bringing it home and maybe infecting vulnerable family members. And then long COVID is another concern. So how do you feel about what we've seen from the Pfizer shot so far? Three doses, 80%. I guess I would have to wait, though, for all three to be completed to get that kind of a number. How long does that take? Yeah, generally you get that complete protection two to four weeks following the last dose. That's when you're going to get your maximum immune responses. And that 80% number, that's that's really a preliminary um, estimate of the protection. Um, it doesn't look like that's statistically significant. So they're going to need longer follow-up and bigger numbers to get that final protection. Okay, so you're a pediatrician. What's your, and, and for lack of a better way of putting it, what's your sales pitch to uh, patients who come to you, uh, mothers, fathers with their kids, who are reluctant to? Because as I just said, when it comes to the older group of kids, it's a pretty dismal record thus far nationwide. It's only about 30 percent have actually gotten vaccinated. You know, I think we've all been told from the beginning that those who are most vulnerable to severe disease are the elderly and those with underlying illnesses. And children generally don't fall into those categories. But what many parents may not um, realize is that although it's it's not as severe as older age groups, it still may result in severe illness. So more than 1,500 children have died in the U.S. from COVID. There's been more than 40,000 hospitalizations, and more than 13 million children have been infected. So I've 
have certainly seen the children who've been in the hospital, in the ICU, on ventilators with COVID, and it's not a pretty sight. Do you think we're also going to have trouble when it comes to the slightly older group of getting those kids their boosters now? Yeah, I think it's going to take some education. Um, We need the data to show that they're um, at risk and need those boosters for more severe disease. I think we don't mind when they get milder breakthrough infection. That's not great to have a breakthrough infection. But really, I think the goal should be to prevent more severe disease and and death. Uh, Moderna uh, and Pfizer, of course, are in competition for getting approved for this uh, younger set. Uh, each one hoping to be the first one. But Moderna, as I understand it, is a two-shot uh, 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 protocol, and Pfizer, as you just mentioned, is three. Because of that, is the two-shot approach uh, an easier sell? Yeah, I think it's, it is easier. It's more feasible. It's always difficult to get patients back to the office to get additional doses. So two doses is certainly easier than three doses. And then we'll need to see the head-to-head numbers in terms of comparison, in terms of protectiveness. You know, initially, Moderna says their initial um, effectiveness estimates were 40 to 50% in this age group. But again, those numbers aren't final, and they're based on small number of infections. So we really need longer follow-up. Dr. Dean Blumberg, pediatrician, infectious disease specialist at UC Davis. Coming up, President Biden talks tough to China about Taiwan. Could this stress uh, relations even more? And a class action lawsuit is filed against McDonald's and some other fast food chains, basically because the hamburgers in your bag just don't look as delicious as what you see on TV. Right now, doctors and scientists learning more about monkeypox and how it might be spread. The leading World Health Organization advisor says the leading theory right now is the virus is um, spread or was spread at two raves that were held in Spain and Belgium. Dr. Bahuma Tatenji, physician, researcher, infectious disease expert at Emory University in Atlanta with us. Doctor, thanks for being here. So what do you make of that theory? That's a plausible theory because when you think about how monkeypox is transmitted, it is a virus that is transmitted by direct close contacts, right? So if you imagine rave events and concerts, that would be optimal conditions where people are next to each other, maybe sweating and, you know, their body-to-body contacts, making it possible that transmissions can occur in those settings. So it's it's not implausible. And um, some of the, the cases, as, as you mentioned, have been linked to these types of uh, mass events. Well, and and uh, in particular, those two rave events that Mike was just uh, alluding to, uh, the, those who are pointing that as uh, to that as possible explanations for this current uh, outbreak, are saying that most of the cases so far have been male to male, uh, two males who have had sex with one another. But I also remember in the early days of uh, HIV when doctors uh, very often erroneously uh, characterized uh, AIDS as being a homosexual or bisexual disease when in fact it had to do really with, with sex and intimacy and sharing of bodily fluids. Is that the case here too? Right. I think that just to clarify, I think one thing that people often forget is that when you talk about close contact, close contact is not only sexual contact. Close contact includes sexual contact, and that is regardless of whether this is heterosexual contact or uh, sex between a man and another man. And, you know, I, I think that people immediately focus on sexual transmission, but forget that viruses just look for the optimal opportunities 
of things that enable them to transmit between hosts that are susceptible. So if you have people, one person who has a monkeypox infection and has lesions on their skin that is in close contact with another individual, that sets up um, an optimal condition for the virus to possibly transmit from one person to another. And if we fixate only on sexual transmission, that can erroneously lead us to miscommunicate to the public and make it seem as though it's only transmission that's happening in one group of individuals, whereas the message that we really need to be giving to people is the virus transmits by close contact. And if you are in close contact with someone who's had an infection, that would make you susceptible possibly to getting um, uh, that infection as well. What else should be in that communication? And what should the level of concern be from from your view? I mean, obviously, we've got our antennae up because we're in the middle of a pandemic still, and we hear about any disease that is new, and people are going to get really worried about it becoming the next thing. I think that for the average person in the general population, you should be aware, but not get panicked about the fact that this is all of a sudden going to be a a situation like COVID-19. This is a different virus. This is a virus that we know circulates in an endemic fashion in, in countries in West and Central Africa and sporadically causes outbreaks in these settings. We also know how it's transmitted. We know that uh, transmission from person to person tends not to be very effective. So most of the outbreaks that have occurred previously in Western Central Africa, where this has been reported, have tended to be quite limited in terms of the numbers of people that have gone on to be infected. Thirdly, we also have vaccines that are effective to prevent um, uh, people from getting this virus tracing their contacts and isolating these individuals are effective ways to break the chains of transmission. But I want to go back to something, uh, doctor, uh, because it it does seem as if something has changed. For example, I mean, there was an outbreak, I believe it was 2003 in in this country. So it has happened before, even in the U.S. It's not like it's never been here. But that said, uh, for the first time you had uh, this emergency meeting uh, on Friday with the World Health Organization because their level of concern has clearly gone up. You had uh, President Biden on the weekend when asked about it, saying that this is something people ought to be concerned about, and presumably he's getting pretty good medical advice from, from his people. So has something changed that's caused this concern, at least publicly expressed concern, to elevate? I think it's because the outbreaks that we're seeing now are different from the outbreaks that we've seen before in the sense that we are having multiple clusters of infection that are happening in different countries. And what this tells us is that the infection has seeded clusters in different geographies and there is local transmission happening from person to person, be it through uh, social networks or other networks that are yet to be defined. It takes time to sort of, you know, pinpoint everybody that is potentially affected by this, isolate them or give them the intervention that they need to have to start breaking some of those transmission chains. Dr. Bahuma Tatanji, physician, researcher, infectious disease experts, Emory in Atlanta. And a little bit later, a new report details widespread sexual abuse and alleged cover-ups 
in the Southern Baptist Church across the country, and spiders. People are ordering spiders through the mail in what is a very big and very popular international trade. I have no idea why <laughs> We're not placing they any. would do that. No. You don't have any in the uh, shopping cart? No, I have no idea why anybody would want to order a spider, but people do. We'll talk about that at the end of the show. Right now, first war crimes trial out of the uh, Russia-Ukraine war is over. Captured Russian soldier pleaded guilty to killing a Ukrainian civilian sentenced to life in prison. Will this be the first of many war crimes trials to come out of this? David Crane, head of the Global Accountability Network, served as a chief prosecutor for the UN's special court for Sierra Leone, which tried former Liberian President Charles Taylor. David, thanks for being here. So uh, that question, first of many, do you think? Yes, it is. I think uh, we're going to see uh, quite a few uh, uh, judicial actions against uh, the Russian Federation forces. You know, it's really important. Uh, this first case, though, is a marker, a signal to Russian Federation forces if they violate the laws of armed conflict, which they're not following clearly, then they'll be held accountable. And so this is a great signal to Vladimir Putin and his commanders and those soldiers that you got to follow the law, the laws of armed conflict, if you're in a conflict. But is what, what is actually happening, though, is everybody kind of laying the foundation? The Ukrainians are going to try uh, Russian soldiers, uh, and the Russians are going to probably try Ukrainian soldiers, and then everybody has a group of people they can trade at some point? Is that it? No, that's not how this works. That's a, you know, I mean, it's a great question and an interesting point. Uh, you know, again, uh, we, uh, we do these, uh, these investigations, indictments, and trials like any other trial around the world. Uh, these are fair and open. Uh, based on the rule of law and not propaganda. And not, we're not setting these guys up for pawns and a very cynical kind of uh, trading prisoners of war game. Uh, the Russians are uh, you know, clearly unhappy about this. They certainly get the signal. But the bottom line is, is that the Ukrainians, so the prosecutor general, are really following the rule of law and prosecuting those who commit uh, violations of the laws of armed conflict, not just as a means by which they can trade the PWs. But it's a fair point, but uh, I, that's not what's going to be happening. You talk about this as a marker and setting down the line. Is it also a pretty high bar in terms of the sentence? Do we see similar sentences going forward if this is your baseline trial, uh, life behind bars? Well, you know, when you sit there as a, uh, as a member of the Russian Federation forces or of any armed forces, if you intentionally target a civilian and kill them, that is a war crime. And war crimes, uh, crimes against humanity, genocide and aggression, our international crimes and our mankind's most worst crimes. And so a life sentence is not inappropriate in this situation. It's based on fact and law, but I'm not surprised he was sentenced to life. And that leaves uh, Vladimir Putin, doesn't it? Um, does he ever get tried? And, and if so, what would an appropriate sentence be for him? He's the one who ordered everything. Well, yes, you know, he is the head of, he's the commander chief of the Russian Federation forces, and therefore under international law, uh, he is individually criminally responsible for the actions of all of his forces uh, in Ukraine as if he had done them themselves. So he is uh, he is very much liable for war crimes, crimes against humanity, uh, aggression and potentially incitement of genocide uh, in appropriate uh, international and domestic mechanisms are investigating uh, him and his commanders for what they have done. Uh, and uh, I really foresee uh, uh, an indictment coming down the line and uh, for him to be indicted for these crimes. Uh, now, whether the fact he's president or not doesn't really matter. Uh, someday he will be handed over to a court for a fair and open trial. But the fact that he's an indicted war criminal, uh, he will lose all legitimacy around the world as a uh, the head of the Russian Federation.
that that second to last point there once he's out of power that's what people would be waiting for right because there's no way while he still maintains his hold while he is the president that he probably sees any kind of consequence for this but he's not going to be president forever well you know he's a dictator uh and dictators don't have a very uh, bright future uh you know they die of natural causes unnatural causes or uh, or they're prosecuted you know there's not a there's not a uh, retirement in his life uh, ahead of him and so uh yeah, he's, uh, you know, there may be a political circumstance when uh, uh, Russian Federation uh, uh, authorities will hand him over for a fair and open trial. They did so with President Charles Taylor when they handed him over to us for a fair and open trial. So these things take some time. But the fact that he is indicted war criminal uh, is, a, is a tremendous signal to all uh, strongmen around the world. They're watching like crocodiles uh, that uh, if you commit international crimes as a head of state, uh, you'll be held accountable. David Crane, head of the Global Accountability Network. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. President Biden in Japan working on strengthening relations uh, with the country. The president today, though, said something that uh, may have startled China. Mr. Biden said the U.S. would get the military involved if China was to invade Taiwan. Now, that's apparently not a policy shift, but it, it is something generally not said out loud. With us is Shihoko Goto, director of uh, geoeconomics and Indo-Pacific Enterprise and deputy director for the Asia program at the Wilson Center. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. It's great to be here. So uh, the White House says it's not a policy shift when the president answered yes to a question of whether or not the U.S. would get involved uh, with the military. Uh, how is that not a policy shift? Right. Well, um, in the late 1970s, the United States um, really cut off official ties with Taiwan, that if there is going to be only one China, then it would be Beijing-led China, and that Taiwan would be part of China. So this is where this terminology of a one-China policy comes in. Um, that said, the United States has been incredibly supportive of, of Taiwan, and it has given a lot of military as well as economic support. But the wording has always been very careful to say that it would um, the White House would um, support, uh, but not necessarily intervene militarily in China, in Taiwan, because that would be going into domestic issues. So now Biden is saying that it would come to the defense, the military defense of Taiwan. And that is really engaging in Chinese domestic concerns. Or so that would be the Beijing, Beijing's interpretation of the situation. Yeah. What was the uh, the name for this before? Strategic ambiguity. Is that right? right. That no one was really right. sure what we were going to do. But this does <laughs> exactly. seem like a break. Or on the other hand, does it? I mean, if if this was the quiet part now out loud, was it even really that quiet? If as some people are pointing out, you know, every time you war game this, if China was to do it, we're always involved at the end of the day. So if we were always involved, then why not just say it and put everybody on the same page? Right. Well, the end goal here for the United States is to ensure stability, right? We don't want to get to war with China. But China is declaring that Taiwan is, in, is a core interest and that they're really prepared to go to war to save um, what they see as um, something that is rightfully theirs. And so the United States has to tread very carefully on this, not to aggravate China on the one hand, but to also ensure 
that Taiwan does not um, get absorbed into China. So words matter in this. And so this is why we're seeing a lot of attention being paid as to what Biden said. Well, I mean, again, and, and I guess to be as clear as one can be with something that's clearly <laughs> designed to be ambiguous. Right. Uh, I mean, when when the president says uh, we would get involved militarily, that doesn't necessarily translate, does it, into boots on the ground? It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have U.S. soldiers, you know, combating uh, Chinese troops. It could just simply mean providing, you know, intelligence info, right? Yeah. So what's happening, like we looking around the world, Ukraine, right? We're seeing a lot of U.S. engagement in Ukraine, but not exactly, you know, direct military intervention. The United States is supporting Ukraine every other means possible. Um, But that has given a lot of fodder about, okay, well, what is the United States going to do about other areas where it does need to intervene? Is it prepared? Should it intervene? If Taiwan is invaded, these are the kind of questions that the White House is really trying to um, engage with. And yes, um, there is a lot of call for greater what's called strategic clarity. Um, but at the same time, the, the goal, again, is to not provoke China. Do you think that China looks at what Russia did and the failures with this and is second guessing a little bit or at least walking back and thinking, okay, if we're going to do this, we got to be sure that we can pull it off because they're having trouble. Yeah. So the understanding was that for Russia, this was supposed to be a cakewalk, right? Ukraine was supposed to be this easy way for um, just like it did in Crimea, um, that it would be able to absorb Ukraine. Um, and China was support was supporting that kind of easy uh, military intervention. That has not been the case, and so it's given a lot of thought to Beijing and saying, right, well, we thought we could invade Taiwan too, but it's actually not going to be easy, and certainly. Um, the international community would be up in arms should uh, China invade Taiwan. So there is a lot of reconsideration, I believe, on the part of the Chinese, but they can play the long game. So if China does really want to remain committed to Taiwan, and it does, I mean, China is not only committed to um, uh, claiming Taiwan is theirs, it's also you know, really imposed itself on, on Hong Kong, um, it's cracking down on the Uyghurs. It doesn't have a lot of uh, reconsideration. A lot of um, uh, public opinion, international opinion doesn't really stop them from wanting to claim what they think is theirs. And Taiwan is certainly one of them. Shihoko Goto, Director for Geoeconomics, Indo-Pacific Enterprise and uh, Deputy Director of the Asia Program at the Wilson Center. Thank you. The leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention have released a big third-party investigation into sex abuse in the church. It found sex abuse survivors were often ignored, minimized, and even vilified by top clergy. Some sex abuse survivors have been sharing their stories for years, but say they're still surprised to see the cover-ups that have been alleged at these uh, highest of levels. All this comes ahead of next month's annual Southern Baptist Convention in Anaheim. With us is Tiffany Thigpen, whose own story of sexual abuse is detailed in the report. Tiffany, thanks for talking to us. Given what you've been through, what is it like to have all this out in the open today, detailed like this after months and months of, of everybody working on it? Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me on to speak to this. Uh, It indeed has been a very long fight. 
Uh, many of us have been, I know for myself, especially Krista Brown and Dave Pittman, we have been at this since about 2005 for Krista, 2006 for myself and Dave. And it took this long just to get to what we feel like is the starting line. Um, unfortunately, now we will um, have the truth shown to the world and to the SBC. And I feel like the most of the members of all of the churches of the SBC umbrella really didn't know the depths of cover-up that was there. And that's what we've been speaking to all of these years. But now they know. And now we get to see if they're going to act. And, and briefly, just summarize for our listeners what the cover-up involved. Well, the Southern Baptist Convention, um, second largest Protestant de- denomination in the country, has a different system than the Catholics in that they, they claim autonomy as their guide and their guard to their individual churches. So there's a group um, largely driven by senior executive committee staff that kind of make the decisions in between the annual meetings. So this summer there comes an annual convention meeting in which they vote and they any policy changes that may be needed or any um, subject matter that might come up throughout the year, they vote on it at the convention, but in between the EC staff is the one that kind of oversees and makes decisions. So what we found is that really it kind of stopped at the top. So you might um, come forward with abuse case to your local church it might not be handled properly or it might not go far enough. Your abuser may or may not be turned over to, to the authorities and you go up the chain to executive committee staff or to your higher level leaders and you hope that you're going to have people that would automatically act. I mean, this is the church. Um, but what we found is that there were constant roadblocks and a throw up of the hand saying that we have autonomy. We have no control over our local churches or what they do. Um, and then direct us back to the local church, which is the, you know, a lot of times the issue. But bad enough also to the point that there was apparently a list of, of people that were accused oh, and nothing yes. was done. Yeah, that was heavy. Um, we, we knew that they knew there was a crisis here and a problem and they were denying that. We've been saying it for years and years and years. We know the numbers. We've been as advocates, we're survivors, but we've become advocates. We hear stories from other survivors and we go in to fight for them only to be roadblocked. Um, and so when we found out that the entire time they're telling us that there is no way to keep a database of abusers, to keep you know the spotlight case from the Catholic church of moving an abuser from church to church, um, we have asked for a database to be able to better monitor abusers and they said it's absolutely impossible. And then we are blown away yesterday and reading the report to find out that all along they've been keeping their own list of criminally accused or even just reported at church level that are credibly accused um, offenders. Your own case uh, of abuse was, as we mentioned in the very top, was detailed in this uh, report. Um, yes. Can you just briefly tell us a little bit about your own experience? Unfortunately, with my abuser, um, the cover-up was much, much more impactful on my life than the abuse itself, which you will hear from most survivors. Most survivors, the secondary abuse of not being listened to, not being heard, cases not being prosecuted, those kinds of things. When you find the courage to come forward and then it's met with, you know, basically almost uh, push you to the side um, mentality, like you're, you're the troublemaker coming forward. In my case, when I came forward, I was coming forward to the two, at the time, biggest leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention, 
So in 1991, when my abuse case happened, not only was my abuser well-loved and beloved within the SBC convention, but the people that mentored him and that kind of protected him and led him from, you know, into his speaking engagements and helped introduce him to other higher leaders, they were at the time the two leaders of the conservative resurgence, along with Paul Pressler. So when I came forward, I thought I'm coming forward to the best people possible. These are the top leaders. Certainly they're going to move and take action, but that was not the case. And instead, I was told that it would be embarrassing for me to go further. In other words, people will find out what happened to you and it might be embarrassing and you'll ruin the church. So um, the leadership told me that they would handle it and encourage my mom and I not to go forward to authorities and not to share with anyone else. And that is exactly what I did for most of my, um, I was a, a senior in high school at the time. And then most of my young adult life until I started having children of my own, I kept it a secret. You said earlier that this is a starting line. So what needs to happen now? Well, what we're hoping is that this report will move the people of the Southern Baptist Convention, what we call the messengers. Um, the messengers are selected people within each church that, get, that gives to the cooperative funding and that gives to the program that's in good fellowship with the Southern Baptist Convention. They go to the convention every year appointed by their individual churches to vote. So they get to have the say in what happens. They voted yes to this investigation that has been, you know, something that they have not wanted for so many years. And this year, this past convention, they almost unanimously voted yes to be independently investigated, which led us to the report yesterday. So now what we're hoping is now that they've seen that we've been telling the truth all along, there indeed is a crisis. There indeed has been extreme over, uh, well, I, I can't even say oversight. There's been absolute corruption. Um, of the information given to senior staff and legal counsel has been corrupt at best. Um, and we are hoping that they now move and that they vote in a database, that they allow us to maybe um, have a say in some of the protocol that's, that's created to how to better protect individual churches and reporting systems so that when the abuse comes forward, there is somewhere safe to report. But there is also a trauma-informed person on the other side that can keep the ball moving forward so it doesn't reach a stalemate or so that they're not bullied and intimidated. We would like to, at some point, redefine a code of conduct for ministers and what is absolutely not allowed, what it means to be in good fellowship as a pastor and, and within the Southern Baptist Convention, and provide resources for victims. And really, we just want the mindset of the messengers to change, that they are not controlled by the senior staff. Um, and that if, if this really is an autonomous church where the senior staff doesn't have control over them, then we're hoping they show up in June, which we're coming to L.A. for the convention. Um, we're hoping they show up and that they vote for survivors and for protected protections for their um, parishioners, their children, and that we can begin to make a change. Tiffany Thigpen, her story uh, details in this uh, report. Tiffany, thanks for talking to us. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. All right, you see the commercials or uh, billboards for the fast food, the hamburgers. The burgers look great, right? Oh, yeah. They're like chef hat kind of burgers. Uh, Bun's perfect. Lettuce is crisp, but you get excited, and then you go and get one. Yeah, and then you open the bag, and it doesn't quite look like the Looks picture. like a fast food burger. Yeah, right. One person is so upset about it. 
They filed a class action lawsuit against McDonald's, Wendy's, and other fast food restaurants, alleging false advertising. But is it really? Frances Perdue is a publicist in food marketing and branding expert. She's the founder of Scooter P Entertainment and Purdue Inc. Uh, Frances, uh, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So, uh, you know, uh, I have to admit, and I think all of us have, have seen this over the years. I mean, you know, things on TV commercials and in magazine spreads, you know, they always look really great. And, you know, most of the time they don't quite look the same when you really buy them. Is that unusual? It is very common. <laughs> Not <laughs> <Yeah>. unusual at all. <laughs> but, why, but why is that? Well, I think that um, it depends on the mission of the fast food chain or the fast casual chain, right? Um, I was director of public relations for a fast casual restaurant, and you can't always please everyone, but you do your best to show your product in the best light. And I think people get caught up in the nostalgia of what's popular, right? Whether it's hip hop music behind the burger dancing or whatever it is, and people focus on that versus the reality of the situation. So I'm a Cali native, so you know, I love In-N-Out. <laughs> they talk about the burgers and never frozen and fresh lettuce, but they never talk about that processed American cheese, right? <laughs> they it's always, always give you the best of both worlds. So that's exactly what they get caught up on when they do commercials, as well as, you know, print and OOH out of home marketing. So what do you think about this, this lawsuit? Other than Maybe the judge just says, uh, this is a thing that we all realize. Why don't you? Uh, where's the line between false advertising and this something being dressed up to look good? Because they've got like food stylists who go and make the food look good. But if they're doing something where that's not the same burger they sell you, well, then maybe that's different. I think that there's a fine line, right, that we toggle all the time. I think the judge is going to do what most judges do. It's not going to be a big payout, right? You'll end up with, oh, if you have the McDonald's app, you can get a free burger today. <laughs> <laughs> so it's going to end up being not what they actually thought, not a whole bunch of money. I think that it is um, good that his lawsuit went through because a lot of lawsuits are filed against McDonald's, Wendy's, et cetera, right? However, um, the consumers just have to be aware. And I think the companies are getting smarter. So they have, you know, I don't know if you've been to some of the fast food restaurants lately, but it says, oh, you can have gluten free. Oh, yeah. here are the facts. But nobody really reads that. If your child is hungry and you want a happy meal, you don't get it. <laughs> Give but, them the fries. But yeah. when, when, uh -huh. when someone's doing, though, a, a TV commercial or a magazine, yeah. you know, photo, uh, what sort of things are allowed and what? is not allowed. I mean, I, I get it that they, you know, they're going to do great lighting and they're going to put it in the right color background so it stands out. And, and that makes sense. But I mean, for example, ice cream ones, can they use so that it doesn't drip? Can they use like plastic ice cream and shoot that <laughs> and set and, and use that for their commercial when in reality it would have melted three seconds later? Um, they actually can because it's considered a picture, right? And with free speech and all of that great jazz that we have in America, you can make a picture look however you want it to look, right? They do have to put disclaimers. Think about when you're up late and you have this infomercial, right? You hear blah, 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 you can die and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. <laughs> going past really fast. Right. It's the same concept when it comes to OOH, like your billboards, your print. They can't, however, put chocolate ice cream and say that it's vanilla, right? Right, okay. But they can do those things in staging. So unfortunately, as consumers, a lot of the stuff we see is not real, right? Anything with CPG, consumer, consumer product goods, 
we have to assume that it's not going to look exactly like we see it. So they can get away with a lot of stuff. So the SEC and FTC, they all get together and make all these rules. But honestly, people just pay the fines. They don't really care about, you know, yeah. what they do to people. Well, maybe it's not think a certain thing. maybe it's not the look. Maybe it's just as long as if I'm ordering a quarter pounder with cheese, when they throw it on the grill, it's it's the quarter pounder. That, that That's exactly. not the lie that's in the text if it doesn't look the same well you know nothing at the restaurant looks the same as the menu item picture anyway so like what am i going to sue every restaurant in town right i think it's a fine line and i love that consumers are fighting back and i love that um people are saying listen we need to be a little bit more health conscious for our kids and be realistic about what's going into our food so that's the good part of this actual lawsuit is that it's going to put more pressure on the fast casuals and the fast food restaurants and saying hey let people know that there's some other options. You can throw a vegetable on there <laughs> and get your life together. So Francis, I think it's a good thing. Francis <laughs> Perdue, publicist and food marketing and uh, branding expert. I did do a little Googling because the ice cream thing. Yeah. There's an article here that says um, they often use mashed potatoes uh-huh, yeah. in different colors for the ice cream. And then cereal ads often use glue instead of milk because <laughs> it doesn't make the cereal soggy. So wow. there you go. We all uh, get excited when we get a box in the mail. We just can't wait to open it. Imagine if you get a mystery box and you open it and you find a big, creepy spider inside waiting to be your pet. Well, if you ordered it, maybe it's not so creepy. Maybe not. Yeah, but to you and to me, to me it would be very probably creepy. is. Yeah. Uh, new report shedding light on the mostly unregulated trade of spiders, scorpions, other arachnids. Uh, there are concerns with this. With us is Alice Hughes, conservation biologist, University of Hong Kong. She published this report on the uh, spider arachnid trade. Alice, thanks for uh, being with us all the way from Hong Kong pretty early in the morning there. So uh, again, added thanks to you for waking up for this. Uh, before we get to you know why do i want spiders crawling out of the box uh how big of a thing has this become and where did it come from i mean people are even doing like unboxing videos on youtube i ordered a mystery spider box looks what look what's in here it's it's <laughs> like they're acting like it's a, a video game or something well that almost certainly is a thing um what we've seen in the last few years well, actually the last few decades is a growing trade in exotic pets and arachnids is just one of those and who doesn't like a nice surprise coming out of a box? It's like Christmas <laughs> every day. And if you're a spider fanatic, then having a box of mystery spiders probably is something that you do find exciting. Yeah. Even if if they escaped in the post office, maybe not such a good reception. <laughs> and and is, it, is it legal to, to trade or buy, I guess, spiders through the mail? It's a very common phenomenon, especially in the U.S. This is one of the reasons it's so difficult to get a handle on trade because a lot of the spider trade is literally people posting each other spiderlings or slings as well as these mystery boxes of adult spiders. Uh, The legality, it is generally pretty much 100% legal, especially domestically. Internationally, a lot of it is also legal, despite the fact that for many of these species, we have no idea of their conservation status in the wild. Yeah, so take me to that point. If people are going out there realizing they can make a whole bunch of money spending mystery boxes of uh, spiders to people and they're just scooping them up, uh, what is that doing to the, the ecosystems they're supposed to be living in? Well, this is a really good point. What most people probably don't realize is if they do go even to a physical pet store, about 70% of the animals in that store probably came direct from that wild, the wild. So that spider you see looking attractive in that tank could have been in the forest just a couple of weeks beforehand. 
And of course, a lot of them aren't going to survive the journey. They're going to be in cramped conditions. There's not going to be good uh, safety or care taken over um, how many of them survive. So we're talking about potentially millions of animals being taken out of the world. And these are predators. They serve important roles in their ecosystems. And so as we steadily remove species, we can have a fundamental impact on the survival of all of the other species in these systems. Well, you know, you said something just before about, you know, if you see a, a, an attractive-looking spider, and I would never describe a spider as being attractive-looking, no matter what. And and that makes me curious. Why do some people, like myself, and I think Mike, too, if I can speak to I, you. I'm just not a huge fan. Yeah. Why, why do some people really like spiders, obviously, because they're getting them through the mail, and other people, like me and Mike, are going, yeah, not really. Well, there's always going to be some people who find things cool as opposed to other people who shy away from them. And something we see with a lot of the exotic pets is there's this real collector mentality. So many of your listeners might identify with collecting something like Pokemon cards when they were young. And they would want the rarest and they would want to collect them all. And we see the same thing with the exotic pet trade. So if you go to online fora, you will see people literally discussing, what's your species list? I've got 250 species, and we are seeing numbers like that. <laughs> they so took the words out of the Pokemon thing, literally. Possible, just like with Pokemon, the rarest ones are the coolest, and we're seeing species that are potentially undescribed being routinely sold by people because people really want that rare, unusual species. Just to brag to everybody else that they've, they've got the one with the fancy colors or whatever it is. Exactly that. So there are people who, like that Sarawak blue-legged tarantula, that was actually illegally exported and described from an illegally exported specimen because of the national rules in that country. And yeah, people want to boast over who has the rarest one. Is there a particular spider that, that's like really high on the list that people tend to want to order? People often want the rarest one. So it's not just one species. They will often want ones that are the most newly described or the flashiest. That's why a lot of the species we see in trade are either the tarantula species. So 25% of the tarantula species described since 2000 are already in trade, with some species going into the trade the year they're described. But we also found over 100 species or potential species that aren't scientifically described yet, where you have what's called the genus name, so the first part of the name, and then a color or a locality, showing us that it's probably a unique species, but because scientists in this area are so underfunded and because these species are so unappreciated, traders are trading species before scientists have described them. And that's really alarming, because if they haven't been described at this point, they probably have a really small range. And in fact, for all of the spiders in trade, about 75% of them only come from one country, so if you have a couple of people who really want that species, they could collect the whole wild population out because they think it's cool, there's demand for it, and there just isn't a wild population. So they could poach the whole, the whole group and then it's over. Which country in particular? Um, there are spiders all over the world. We see particularly high levels of trade from places like the Amazon as well as places like Indonesia. But across the tropics as well as some desert areas, there are some species of particular interest that are in trade. And every continent has at least one country that seems to act as a conduit. So when you look at what's coming out of that country, you're like, hang on a minute. 
this country is exporting species from the wild that don't live in that country. <laughs> and so those countries are literally acting as a drain for their whole continent of species being taken over the border and exported, sometimes millions of individuals coming out. Alice Hughes, conservation biologist at uh, University of Hong Kong, uncovered a lot of this uh, spider trade. Alice, thank you. You know what I'd like to do? I'd like to start a business where we collect spiders and ship them back. Take them back to the <laughs> wild. Yeah, ship them back. Like we can get donations from a lot of people, Absolutely. probably. All right, that's in-depth for today. Back tomorrow.